0: Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman.
1: Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Axel Merck, who is the president of Merck Investments and the author of a new book called Sustainable Wealth, Achieve Financial Security in a Volatile World of Debt and Consumption. Welcome to the show, Axel.
2: Good to be with you, Jordan.
1: Let's just start with a little bit of your background uh, and tell us a little bit about the mutual funds uh, that you're running these days and what led you to write this book.
2: Well, sure. I have been in this business, in the mutual fund business, since 2005, but started my own business back in '94, a traditional investment advisory business. And over the years, uh, my strategies turned more conservative. And I didn't see the sort of diversification that people look for typically in the traditional things they're doing. And around 2000, we veered more towards cash and precious metals management, international cash management in particular. And then in 2005, we started a hard currency fund that invests in a basket of hard currencies to diversify out of the dollar, um, forecasting the threats to the dollar that that have been playing out. Then we started an Asian currency fund, have since launched an absolute return currency fund, and are really establishing currency as an asset class. Now, in the fall of 2008, when the world seemed to be falling apart, nobody wanted to buy any financial products. We thought, well, why don't take the time to sit down and write a book and do something useful with that that time? And since then, things have been extremely busy yet again. Um, But that's how the book came about. It's a collection of thoughts that I wanted to write down for a long time, describing how the dynamics that came about um, that led to the financial crisis and, more importantly, what people can do to to weather a storm of that sort and how to go through the borders as as they are likely to um, play out in, in the coming months and years.
1: You talk in the beginning about how to achieve excellence as a financial pilot. What do you mean by that?
2: We draw a lot of um, parallels to, to being a pilot. I'm, I'm a private pilot myself, and the one thing you do when, when you're a private pilot, um, the one thing you don't have, you don't have the luxury of pressing a, a pause button when you're in the air. You, you have to be ahead of the game. You have to think about what you're doing next. You have to think about what risks to take and what risks you don't want to take. And obviously, ultimately, you want to safely arrive at your destination. And in real life, that might be retirement. That might be leaving a legacy, a financial legacy. Uh, that might be good health. And, and so uh, I take a lot of care in, in, in encouraging people to have a plan and setting the priorities and then sticking those priorities and making sure that those uh, can be implemented.
1: Is that something you think most people do?
2: Well, maybe they think about it once, but few people actually do it. Um, and let me, let me give you here some, some examples. Um, uh, when, when you're hit with a financial crisis, um, some people in a panic sell their stock, other people do this or that, but what you should really be doing is what is your priority? If your priority is that you want to save for college, say, for your kids, well, then that's the top priority you should have. Are you able to still put money aside to save for college for your kids? And that should be a top priority. Similarly, when you have lost half of your wealth in the stock market, are you going to listen to your broker to stick it through, or are you going to do something else? Well, my argument is what are the risks that you can afford to take. Odds are that if you've lost half of your net worth, you can afford to take less risk. And so, even though there might be a, a major rebound in the markets, is it prudent to bet everything you have because you can afford less now to lose? And so, I'm encouraging people to take prudent risk, to take it a step at a time, um, especially in an environment where you don't know what the, what curveball the policymakers are going to throw your way next.
1: Now, you talk. The, the title of the book is Sustainable Wealth. What do you mean by sustainable wealth?
2: Well, sustainable is something that will last you through, through good and bad times. To something where you can have something at the end of of your career, at the end of your life, where you what you're satisfied with, and um, preferably uh, it would be something where you can leave a legacy to um, to your loved ones. Some people nowadays think that oh, if you if you end up with a zero at the at, at the bottom of your checkbook at the end of your life, that's that's the best possible scenario, but uh, um, I, I would think that most of the time, first of all, you don't know exactly that date that you'll um, say, say goodbye to this world. Um, and, and more importantly, you probably want to have a little bit of a buffer. So sustainable wealth is one where you can live without fear, where you can sleep without fear about your investments, where you can, um, where you can live a life that you want to live, and you can do so by taking prudent steps. And obviously you have to take them early, and most importantly you have to um, take your priorities very, very seriously.
1: A lot of people just kind of go from one investment to another, and sustainable is the last thing they think. They're just jumping on the latest hot trend and so on. What are some of the elements, we'll get into the details later, but what are some of the elements that make a strategy sustainable in the long term?
2: Well, let me give you an example in in what you just said, for example. Um, there is the analogy and richard russell um, wrote this uh, many years ago richard russell is a, is a market time it's been business for over 50 years he 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 contrasts the rich man and the poor man and he says that the the rich man can afford to be on the sidelines when you have a lot of wealth odds are that things are paying dividends you get some income here and there and so what if you miss a major market trend you're not going to go bust not jumping on the bandwagon and because of that you can wait for real opportunities in the markets. you can wait for real values Whereas. If you're poor, most of the time, you want to chase the next trend because you really want to make it up. You really want to make it on this big trend, and odds are that you're going to invest at the top. And so one of the very important things is that uh, you have your own vision of how are things going to play out, and then you can take the prudent decisions when you think the time is right. And one of the, the elements to that is, and we're doing that in the first part of the book, um, explaining the dynamics in the world so you can make some sense of what's happening out there. Why is it that the policymakers are throwing around trillions? Why is it that this is happening? And so a, a core understanding, and not of, you don't need to be a, a, an expert on, on everything in, in the financial markets, because by all means, I don't think there are too many around, and the policymakers aren't experts either. But you have to have a sense of the dynamics that are playing out. You have to have a sense of why is it that this is how tax policy works? Why is it that protectionist sentiment is going up? Why is it that our wages haven't been going up? And, and based on that, have a little bit of an idea so that you're not drawn into following every single pundit that comes up on TV and, and says one thing and the next pundit says something else.
1: You talk about the current world uh, being one of debt, consumption, and temptation, and we're going to go into more detail about that. But, but how did we get to the current situation, and is that always the way it's been, or was it way where, where we did not have debt, consumption, temptation before? Is this a a relatively new phenomenon, or has this been the way it's been for a long time?
2: Well, obviously, debt is as old as history is, but the the, the element it plays in our lives has changed, in particular over the last 20 years. We have been driven much more towards a credit-driven society. Um, and what I mean with that is that you used to pay cash for most things, and nowadays you Buy your mattress with a credit card. Your your exercise machine. Your sandwich, even. Um, and and it used to be you only bought your house, maybe a car on, on credit, and that has profound implications. The main implication is that um, that everybody is more interest rate sensitive. In the early 80s, when when Volcker, the former Federal Reserve Chairman, raised interest rates dramatically, sure it hurt, but it wasn't the end of the world. Whereas if we had interest rates now at 20%, just let them go up one or two percentage points, um, people would would cry and say, oh, my God, that's the end of the housing market, that's the end of this or that. Uh, And the reason is that there is so much more credit in the system. There's so much more leverage in the system. And even though we've had this credit bust, we haven't allowed the, the deleveraging to play out. And one of the big side effects of that is, the federal reserve in particular that that uh, that pretty much control the access to credit and in some ways um, they are they are in a corner they can't really tighten credit because um, there's, if they were to tighten credit too much, um, that would have an amplifying effect, a much greater effect than it would have 20 years ago. So from that point of view, things have changed um, quite a bit. And then, of course, a society overall is, is evolving. But um, ultimately, of course, the, the, it's throughout time that debt, um, consumption uh, and, and, and credit, these, these, these aspects always have a major influence. But in the current environment, they are far more pronounced than they have traditionally been. Are
1: there similar times in history, I mean, going all the way back, the Roman Empire, other times when we've had similar cycles of debt and consumption, and what happened uh, when those cycles played out?
2: Well, sure, you can draw some parallels. The one parallel maybe that's um, that's the easiest one to draw is to that of the Roman Empire, um, where over time... I'm running a government just got much more expensive when you have your military everywhere in the world. You have to um, you have to try to support that military. You have to um, you have you are responsible for for global peace or the global dynamics as they play out. That's very expensive. At the same time at home, there is a higher standard of living. People have more demands. There's more money spent on welfare. Um, and the way that governments throughout the world address these issues is usually by printing money. Um, the, the gold coin, content in the coins was already induced in those days. Nowadays, we are far more efficient. We have a printing press at the Federal Reserve. It's far easier to dilute the purchasing power of money. Um, but those are very similar dynamics that, that have happened out um, through history that as, as society um, in any one country goes to certain stages, people. Um, we, we get to a stage where our lifestyle becomes very expensive, and we are demanding many services from the government, and the government in turn is trying to provide those by inflating. Now, um, that's not necessarily the end of the world. The Roman Empire, after those, those problems um, started out, continued for another 300 years. Um, but at the same time, um, one has to be aware of that if one wants to preserve one's own purchasing power and not be drawn in um, by, by the news of the day.
1: Is, do you think we're in a similar situation now to the, uh, the peak of the Roman Empire and declining, and uh, they went through a long deleveraging period? Is 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 it in fact similar to that today?
2: Well, what we have today, what is truly unique, is that um, the the leverage is, is in proportions we haven't seen before in many ways, and they have what I have explained in the book is that. Um, the The credit creation process moved from the government to the private sector, and what I mean with that is that it, it used to be if, if we take more current time, for example um, government typically controls interest rates um, uh, the the reserve ratios and banks and so forth. but what happened after two thousand and four when the Federal Reserve started raising interest rates um, the the economy continued to boom and that happened because suddenly individuals started using their homes as atm machines and um, banks started to use special investment vehicles hedge funds started to gear themselves up much more and the reason that happened is because the private sector created the money the private sector created that that credit and the big the reason why that is very relevant is because nowadays it is the private sector that wants to have the credit contraction And when the private sector wants to have the credit contraction, the government forces are very difficult, have a very difficult time fighting those.
1: Very good. All right, we're going to take a break. Uh, My guest this hour is Axel Merck, uh, who is a fund manager with Merck Investments. Uh, His new book is called Sustainable Wealth, Achieve Financial Security in a Volatile World of Debt and Consumption. We'll be back after this.
0: both their products and services are invited to become members of the money answers network the public can sign up for membership in the money answers network at no charge in order to be apprised of the latest useful resources to learn more visit www.moneyanswers.com get ahead with money answers
3: are you ready to go green you've asked and we've heard you voice america presents the green talk network
0: Together with my dear friend, Dr. Howard Piper, we are hosting our own show called Kiss Your Life Hello. We are two internationally recognized experts, researchers, authors, and health advocates in holistic medicine and counseling. We promise you a fantastic show with interesting guest experts to educate and entertain you with the latest information on mind, body, and spirit wellness. Join us on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific and 10 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. See you there.
1: which is a a mutual fund company offering uh, currency assets and hard asset kinds of funds. His new book is called Sustainable Wealth, Achieve Financial Security in a Volatile World of Debt and Consumption. Welcome back to the show, Axel.
2: Hi.
1: In part one, you talk about the world of temptations. And let's briefly go through the different temptations and how people should be dealing with them today. The first one is the temptation of credit. So talk about that a little bit.
2: Well, sure. I mean, credit is something that has been with mankind for many, many uh, centuries, if not millennia. And and, uh, credit is not always bad, but you have to be able to have it work in your favor. Um, When you use a lot of credit, your monthly paycheck takes you much further, but at the same time, you become what I call is less shock resistant. If you have a problem, well, you still have to pay your debt back. You still have to pay your credit card bills. And so you've got to be very careful and only use credit when you can afford to take the risk. And with anything, you have to look at the world um, and as far as the risks that you can afford to take, and credit is one of those. Can you afford to take that credit rather than being drawn in temptation of just using it to, to enhance your short-term lifestyle?
1: Well, on the governmental level now, we're taking on an enormous amount of debt, a trillion, trillion and a half dollars a year. Um, people say it's unsustainable. Yet, in fact, we've been sustaining it for a long time. What's to say we can't go to 15 trillion, 20 trillion. I mean, why will the game ever stop if people keep buying the treasury bonds?
2: Yeah, you, you, you just mentioned what if if the people keep buying the treasury bonds. Um, in in recent years, um, foreigners in particular, the Chinese, have been one of the the great finances of of our consumption. And basically, when when you sell the family silver, you you're selling claims on on, on the U.S. Um, you can get going for a long time. Um, what I've been arguing is, especially within the time frame of most investors, which is um, a couple of years or so. Um, the total amount of debt for a country doesn't really affect asset prices all that much. It's mostly a question of the of the cash flow, of the, of the dynamics of who is buying and selling it. Um, Japan has shown that they can have a great amount of debt, but it's not going to haunt the Japanese until they need to um, finance the debt from abroad. Now, because they traditionally do not have a current account deficit, they have been financing their debt domestically. Now, the U.S., has their debt financed externally from the Chinese. And what that means is that you need to continuously show growth in order to attract the money. Um, That is one of the reasons the Federal Reserve is pursuing such an aggressive growth policy because in the absence of growth, all foreigners may not put their money into the U.S. anymore. Now, the best way to cure that, of course, is by having less debt, by issuing less debt, by issuing less debt. Um, unfortunately, that is not the trend we're seeing. And so we're going to be in this cycle where we're trying to grow at an ever greater rate. Um, of course, it's not going to work in practice. Um, but in the meantime, yes, foreigners continue to buy our debt because the U.S. is still a better place to, um, to put your money than many other places. Unfortunately, though, prices are set at the margin. And if on the margin, people are starting to question whether well, they should put their money in the U.S. or elsewhere, well, then on the margin, the dollar may suffer in value as people diversify and put their money elsewhere.
1: So does this create what they call crowding out, that the U.S. government will pay whatever price it takes to, to float its debt, whereas corporations and individuals c- cannot do that, and therefore they have to cut back on their consumption?
2: Well, sure. I mean, there, there you're, the crowding out aspect is, is indeed the one where the government has been substituting rather than encouraging private sector activity. And that appears on many, many levels. It happens when the Federal Reserve provides um, uh, credit to, in, in commercial paper market. General Electric. Sure, General Electric likes it, but no private party wants to participate. It happens when the Federal Reserve buys mortgage-backed securities. Everybody loves the low interest rates, but no private sector participant wants to, wants to engage in that market. And more importantly, why would you want to buy securities that are intentionally overvalued? That one of the big themes of 2010 is the access to credit and... Not just for corporations, but also for weaker governments. We see it with with countries like uh, like Greece or Ireland, um, but we see it in the U.S. as well with the commercial paper market. If you do not have access to to the credit markets. If you do not have pristine credit, um, you have a big problem, and it's a direct result of the policies. You can print all the money you want, but unless you you cure some of the underlying ills, you, that that all the printed money will mostly make it to to areas where you have the most monetary sensitivity. That's precious metals or currencies outside of the dollar sphere, where the money is much stickier than in the U.S., where corporations just don't have access to that credit.
1: That there are, we've been talking for a while about the BRIC countries: Br- uh, Brazil, Russia. India and China, which are the fastest growing parts of the world economy. And now there's this new uh, word as the pigs, which is uh, Portugal, Ireland, Greece, and Spain. Tell me the difference between the BRICS and the pigs as far as uh, their use of debt and credit.
2: Well, sure. I mean, the the BRICS, I, I think, have been uh, well discussed. They have high growth countries. They, they have high inflation, but high growth. Whereas the the pics countries, as as they refer to, um, they have uh, overwhelming government debt and they don't have easy access to credit. Now, the question is, what are the implications? And uh, the implications, of course, for a country like Greece is that they're struggling. The cost of borrowing is going higher. Many people are wondering what's happening to the euro as a result of it. And uh, let me draw a a comparison here to Japan. The Japanese don't need to To finance the debt externally and as a result the Japanese even though they've had lousy economic growth for many years the Japanese yen has been reasonably strong in the eurozone as an aggregate not just Greece but as an aggregate Western Europe the eurozone doesn't need to finance its deficits from abroad either there is no substantial current account deficit and so what I've been arguing is that in the eurozone um, the economic growth will be lousy because the access to credit is going to be tough but that can happen on the backdrop of a very strong currency take for example the federal reserve the federal reserve in the u.s. is trying to induce economic growth by intentionally weakening the currency and they do that so intentionally because they try to inflate the prices of government bonds mortgage-backed securities to scare away investors from the u.s. send them overseas well they may go and buy uh, by the euro, um, because there you have more stability. You're going to get lousy economic growth on the backdrop of a strong currency. The, in the Great Depression, the countries that went off the gold standard sooner recovered faster from the Great Depression. And so, what you can have, you can have one of these pick countries be stuck with a very strong currency and lousy economic growth. It's called the depression. Um, a depression or stagflation if, if you get inflation through other factors. Um, it can be a very tough scenario, but you can have a very strong currency on the backdrop of these lousy currencies. So uh, these these policies that, especially in the PIX countries, um, are going to cause them a lot of problems in, in the months and years to come.
1: So if you were running the Federal Reserve now, say I'm going to make you run the Federal Reserve and the European Central Bank at the same time. I'm going to make you master of the universe here. What would you do as a different policy than what's happening today?
2: Well, what you need to do is you need to allow market forces to play out. Because if you do not do that, all your policies become extremely expensive, and we see that on the fiscal side when when you have a cash for clunkers program that that doesn't cause long-term economic growth. You see that on the Federal Reserve side when they're trying to subsidize specific sectors of the economy. People make the big mistake and they say, "Well, the Federal Reserve saved the financial system in October of '8 from a collapse." Well, maybe they did so, but then they had a choice. Do you facilitate an orderly winding down of the excesses you've had in the bubble or you try to stem against the market forces? And by stemming against the market forces, all you do is you're eroding the purchasing power of everybody because you need to print a lot of dollars or euros or other currencies in other countries to, to, to try to fight against that. And ultimately what you're going to happen the market forces might end winning it. After all, except that you'll have destroyed the purchasing power. You need to have the weak players fail, and you need to uh, uh, reward the strong players. So you need to put the rules in place. And there, the Federal Reserve, in my view, has done a much worse job than the European Central Bank. The European Central Bank has kept the banking system alive through mechanisms that can be wound down far more easily. There's a lot of talk in the Federal Reserve how they now have these mortgage-backed securities with maturities in many years. Um, The Philadelphia Fed president... um, Charles Plaza, he said that the Federal Reserve should take all these mortgage-backed securities, dump them on the Treasury, and the Treasury should issue bonds in return. Well, that will never happen, but I fully agree. The Federal Reserve has no business conducting um, all these operations that are really fiscal policy. The reason why Bernanke's reappointment has had so much questioning is because he's veering away from monetary policy. A central bank should stick to monetary policy and not be engaged in fiscal policy.
1: You're talking here about how U.S. consumer debt has risen so dramatically in recent years. Uh, Has that reversed? I mean, lately, consumer credit outstanding has actually been falling, and consumers uh, in the U.S. have had a change of heart. It seems they're using debit cards instead of credit cards more. Their savings rate is going up. Has that uh, trend reversed now?
2: It, it has to an extent and out of necessity because um, there's just no money available to take out from homes anymore right now. Um, but it hasn't happened enough. And more importantly, the the key place where people have been taking money out from housing hasn't adjusted enough. We've kept housing artificially high through uh, ec- excessively low interest rates. And, um, and, and in that sort of environment, we cannot allow the deleveraging to, to take place sufficiently. There's a key difference between encouraging saving and investments and as a result have people spend less or spending less out of necessity because um, you just don't have access to credit anymore um, when when it's out of weakness, um, that is not necessarily a sign for long-term prosperity. You really need to have policies in place to encourage long-term savings investments. And unfortunately, every policymaker always wants that to happen on the watch of the next politician. For the current economic cycle, or uh, for the current uh, political cycle, people want you to spend as much as possible, so that headline economic growth is as high as possible.
1: You're saying that basically we're in a bond market bubble now, is that right? What, can that go on for a while, or, or what ultimately pops that bubble?
2: Well, bubbles in history can last a long time. It's always very difficult to short a market. We saw that in the tech bubble. We saw that in the housing bubble. We've seen that in in great manias throughout history. It's very difficult to call the top. Um, What I have argued in my book, to come back to the the book a little bit, is that um, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but you can try to assess the world in terms of risks and probabilities. You know that what this in the situation we're in is not sustainable. Well, why not take it into account in your portfolio allocation that this bubble may burst and position yourself accordingly. Some people say I'll worry about inflation when inflation comes and hits us. Well, gold has gone from $250 an ounce to, to about $1,100 an ounce. Some people say, I'm worried about the dollar when the dollar finally goes down. Well, versus the euro, the euro used to be at 80 cents. Now it's at over dollar $1.40. Um, so, yes, you can worry about the end of the world when the end of the world comes, but why not position yourself um, early, and maybe you're too early. But if you take those scenarios into account early, you'll sleep much better at night.
1: Indeed, okay. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Axel Merck. Uh, whose new book is called Sustainable Wealth, Achieve Financial Security in a Volatile World of Debt and Consumption. We'll be back after this.
3: Journey into the realm of spirit, the source of all things. Master fear in these tumultuous times and learn ancient ways to abundant love and healing. Why shamanism now? A practical path to authenticity will awaken the unique genius within you host christina pratt challenges you to initiate your innate powers within to gain health well-being and joy through the practices of last mask center for shamanic healing tune in each week to why shamanism now wednesdays at 2 p.m pacific 5 p.m eastern on seventh wave network when it comes to business you'll find the experts here voice america business network
0: You've been listening to The Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan.
1: Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Axel Merck, who runs the Merck Investments uh, Mutual Funds. Uh, his new book is called Sustainable Wealth, Achieve Financial Security in a Volatile World of Debt and Consumption. Welcome back to the show, Axel. Thanks. You have a whole section here on what you call crisis investing. Well, since we've just been through a financial crisis recently, what are some things that people can do to prepare uh, for the next crisis and what do you think that next crisis may be?
2: Sure. Well, the, the next crisis, of course, is always difficult to predict, but one of the best um, bubble indicators, crisis indicators, is when asset prices move in tandem. Usually, what happens is that during during a boom time, a certain sectors of the economy will do well, but others may do poorly. but what you have in in the tech bubble and you had it now in the housing bubble at some point all asset prices are moving higher in tandem, and you had that in stocks and bonds in real estate in international stocks everything and that is a sign that you want to pare down your risk exposure because that means when things turn the other way when the bubble unwinds that there is no place to hide and that's precisely what people saw in two thousand and eight that there is there was no place to hide, and as a result, um, most people lost money, even though they thought they were diversified. Look at your stocks. If every all of them move up in tandem, you may feel great for the moment, but you might actually be, be entering some some very dangerous territory. Now, specifically, when you do have a crisis, um, as I mentioned earlier in your program, um, you got to have your priorities straight, and that means you have to continue to put money aside for retirement or for your kids savings fund um, or whatever your priority may be. And of course, for that to happen, you need to have a plan. But you're giving an example of that. Um, what I describe in the book here is a, a college savings plan that, um, and how I fully funded that. And if you want me to, I can go go into more details on that. Okay, sure. Well, um, the college savings plan that, that uh, my wife and I created earlier last decade, or early last decade, was one where we put physical gold aside um, every year. And I'm not suggesting that physical gold is the one college savings plan that everybody should have, but the key element of that was is that we looked at the number of kids we have, we looked at... Um, if they're smart enough to get into an expensive college, how much money we have to put aside every year. And then we reset that every year based on the number of years left to, for graduation. Well, um, in order for that to happen in, in the 2008, we said, oh, my goodness, there is a crisis coming up. We don't know how it's going to affect us. We thought we were well-prepared. Um, and what we did is... We decided to put more money aside. Indeed, in our situation, we decided to fully fund that. We said, okay, we're not going to put any money at risk anywhere else. The first priority is we have to make sure we have enough money for our kids for college. And so we put enough money aside to fully fund that. And you have to make sacrifices with other life choices in the process, but you've got to keep your priorities straight. And if you do that, well, then all the other expenses you have in life, they, they're discretionary. Um, it may not be as nice if you don't go out to the movies as much, but if your top priority is to save for your kids, well, then don't just talk about it, but actually do it.
1: You also say a, a sign of the uh, coming crisis is the end of a parabolic uptrend. Now, I mean, we've had an enormous up move in the market, uh, stock market since last March. Are, are we in a parabolic uptrend right now?
2: Well, again, history will be our judge. I've been very skeptical of this rally, um, mostly because it's been driven by money that's been been thrown at the system. Now, um, you can take the argument you don't want to stand in the way of policymakers, and if they throw so much money in it, you want to ride right that wave. Um, and from that point of view, it really depends on what type of investor you are. I think you can make money in many, many ways in the market. You can do it the Warren Buffett way um, by always looking for value. You can make it as a trend follower, um, but... You better understand your approach to the market and you stick to it and don't look for justifications to keep an investment if it doesn't stick to the sort of rules that you established for yourself when you first made those investments. And a, this surge we've had in the stock market, um, some people say we're up hugely. Well, we're still dramatically down from the top in the market. And so from that point of view, uh, we've had this major rally. But most people still don't think they're rich because they still have much less money, at least paper money, than they had a couple of years ago. Um, most people lost money throughout the decade last year. And what people should do, um, as these markets are rising, they should uh, steadily take money off the table, and uh, and and have that available for the next correction. And if that correction doesn't happen, well, then you didn't lose out. Um, you just didn't make as much money as as some others did. And it might not be a sexier talk at the at the cocktail party, but again, you will sleep better night. And the reason, by the way, I, I mention all the time about sleeping at night, is that if you can't sleep at night with your investments that means your exposure is too high. You're taking too great a risk if you can't sleep at night. That's ultimately a much better test than sitting down with a financial advisor who's going to pick a number on the spreadsheet on your risk profile. If you're not comfortable with the risk, that means you're overexposed to to risky assets.
1: Another thing you say to look for is the deleveraging trend. Now, it seems clear that we're in a deleveraging trend. Is that a a sign that uh, the crisis is still ahead in front of us?
2: Well, what we have is we have this battle playing out between the market forces and the policy makers. And the market forces want to have a further deleveraging. We would have had a very severe recession, if not a depression, if the market forces were allowed to play out. Um, whereas the policy makers don't like that. The policy makers somehow would like to have, um, all the prices from 2006, but the banks apply the standards, um, of of today that somehow the, the banks need to be very rigid and prudent, but we want all the prices to be as high uh, it doesn 't work and and Right now, what we have is depending on the mood of the day in the market, we think that these reflationary trends play out, um, or that the market forces play out and When the reflationary trends play out, well, most things go up in parallel, but we have um, even better returns. In things that have the greatest sensitivity to to all the money printing, and uh, that is, uh, for example, Australia, that has a has a currency that has a high correlation to the price of gold. You see it in, in 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 all the commodities. And when the market forces play out, well, some people call it the risk aversion coming back in. Then everything crumbles back in because um, ultimately that might be the force that's winning out. If we didn't have Bernanke as the head of the Federal Reserve, I would say the market forces will will win. But because it is quite likely that Bernanke will make it to be um, reappointed as chairman, well, in that case, um, his entire life is dedicated to studying how to fight deflation. And uh, even if ultimately market forces win, um, the, the currency might be one of the, one of the, the victims that's going to fall along the way.
1: And that's what you also say is one of the other signs of a crisis is deliberate devaluation. You're saying that's what the Fed is doing with the dollar right now, is that right?
2: Well, first of all, some people think that a weaker currency is something beneficial. I have yet to see, uh, because it somehow it it does help your next quarterly earning if you're an exporter. I have yet to see a country that has depreciated itself into prosperity. It just doesn't help happen. It it weakens your competitive position. We're in a global world these days, and even if we don't have economic growth, you could have economic growth in China, in Europe, or somewhere else, driving up commodity prices because oil doesn't care who uses it if enough people use it, the price of oil is going to go up. Uh, and then if you have a weaker currency, well, all those commodities are, will be more expensive when translated to US dollars. Ben Bernanke has testified in the past that going off the gold standard during the Great Depression was one of the key reasons the U.S. recovered from the Great Depression. And that pretty much means is if I take away half of your net worth by eroding your purchasing power, you have a greater incentive to work, you will work harder, and GDP growth will pick up. And he might be right on that, but it is not the mandate of the Federal Reserve, and it is not necessarily something that's very nice for savers. It bails out the ones that have a debt. Bernanke wants to have a weaker dollar because he needs the price level to go up. He needs to bail out all the ones to have two who have a mortgage that's too high because housing prices are not going to go high high on their own that easily. And so, by pushing up the price level, and the weaker dollar is a convenient way of doing that. Um, home prices might go higher, and in that environment. Um, in that environment, well, you can look at it and say, all right, these are the dynamics, but then maybe I want to have my money and, and spread it out so that uh, one has a little bit of protection from this weaker dollar.
1: So you're saying that, in effect, he's punishing savers by keeping interest rates very low, almost zero, and subsidizing borrowers who borrowed too much at the peak. And, that's, and it should actually be doing the opposite. Is that Right
2: well that 's very clearly what he 's doing, and uh, well, if you look at what the mandate is of the Federal Reserve, the mandate of the Federal Reserve is not to bail out the ones who have too much debt. The mandate of the Federal Reserve is is to maintain price stability Now the Federal Reserve, the central bank in the u s has has the dual mandate of also promoting maximum sustainable growth, but it 's generally considered that by maintaining um, price stability, that is the environment that fosters um, economic growth on top of that. But the Federal Reserve is squarely is, is going against that by trying to erode the purchasing power of the dollar um, to try to um, induce short-term economic growth, hoping that everything will fall into place. Now, unfortunately, nothing has really worked out the way that our policymakers have wanted it to work out in recent years. And so I have very little confidence that the current game plan of the Federal Reserve is going to work out as, as planned.
1: So is the result of that going to be Uh, inflation and and how severe inflation and when would that start kicking in? Because officially inflation is still quite low uh, today, uh, but when does this start kicking in?
2: Well, a couple of things. First of all, I think the main lesson to take from all this is increased instability. These battles will intensify. We see increased instability with the election in Massachusetts, for example. Um, these are surprises. We have more populist politicians win elections because people are upset. People are upset because of the, what the policies that take place, of what's happening in the world. Um, there will be more protectionism. Um, policies will be more erratic. We, we see proposals now on, on, on more taxes on banks. Um, those are the types of things that happen in the heat of the moment, and we'll see much more of that. Now, I also happen to believe that, yes, we will see inflation. And they are, um, policymakers would like us to believe that inflation is mostly a factor um, of what's called the slack in the economy, the output gap. Because we don't run at full capacity, we can't have inflation. Um, there is no... Um, and no proof in, in economic data to that viewpoint. It is the majority view at the Federal Reserve, but it's by all means not the only view, and in my view, it's also the wrong view. Inflation is really a factor of inflation expectations. If people think there will be inflation, they will ask for higher wages, and prices will go up because everybody's going to try to push prices higher. And that's one of the reasons why central banks always tell you that um, inflation expectations remain firmly anchored. Well, you can look at market data and look at inflation expectations, and indeed, in recent months, they have been ticking above that that, that um, 2% line that Ben Bernanke would love to have as an inflation target. We are moving to a territory where inflation expectations are inching higher. And guess what? The one entity that's ultimately responsible to manage inflation expectations is the Federal Reserve itself. And what the Federal Reserve has said is, Trust us. We'll print as much money as we can. If there was inflation, we would take care of it. Um, but trust us. And by, by having people trust the Federal Reserve, they can get away with all this money printing. The problem is that it would be far better for the Federal Reserve to pursue sound monetary policy in that sort of environment. Um, they wouldn't need to have this cliff lock where the fear is that at some point... Um, it doesn't work anymore, um, but that's not the path we're on. We're currently on a path to print as much money as possible, and at some point they'll have their, their so-called exit strategy. Well, think about it: Are they ever going to raise interest rates substantially with uh, mortgage rates the way they are? And are we really able to absorb much high interest rates? I don't think so. So we do not have an exit strategy, and that's why we will get inflation down the road.
1: What are the uh, indicators that you use? to measure inflation expectations? Is it commodity prices? Is it tip spreads? What is it that you're looking at?
2: Well, the the one that the Federal Reserve is looking at is the, the five-year inflation for, forecast, uh, the five-year, five-year forward, it's called. So you pretty much look at the inflation expectations based on the spread between the, the tips and the bonds 10 years out and five years out and take the difference. You ignore the, the, the early years because there could be any, any short-term phenomenon driving those. So uh, or more simply speaking, you look at just the 10-year tip spread to the 10-year bonds. That's a very crude approximation to that already. Uh, and that's, that's one way you can g- gauge what the market thinks about inflation.
1: And that's been rising lately, as you're saying.
2: That's been rising. That's the tips are the, the, the Treasury inflation-protected securities, and that's been coming off a very low low, low, but it's been going up above the 2% barrier now.
1: Very good. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Axel Merck, whose new book is called Sustainable Wealth, Achieve Financial Security in a Volatile World of Debt and Consumption. And we'll be back after this. <music>
3: If you're thinking of starting a business or are already in business, tune in as The Kitchen Table Entrepreneur addresses business ownership concerns. Business novice or not, let The Kitchen Table Entrepreneur help you each week as we present and discuss the meat and potato issues of starting and running a business. Join the discussion. There's always room for your thoughts and opinions. The Kitchen Table Entrepreneur is a valuable program you should be tuning into every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business this Network.
1: Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Axel Merck, uh, whose new book is called Sustainable Wealth, Achieve Financial Security in a Volatile World of Debt and Consumption. Axel, just tell us briefly, what are the websites that people can find out more about the book and your mutual funds?
2: Sure. SustainableWealth.org is the website that, that we established in support of the book, and it's it goes way beyond the book. It's an economic blog. It's a blog on, on financial decision-making, um, commenting on, on current events, and it's something that you want to add to, to your blog reader. Uh, we have a newsletter there as well. And then the, the other website we have is, is for a mutual fund company. It's MerckFunds.com. Um, Google my name. You'll find it. Um, put it in there, and there we have a newsletter where we'll go more in-depth um, on what's happening in the economy and then make, um, make um, implications for currencies um, in particular um, as we focus mostly on, on currency investing.
1: So tell us a little bit about the mutual funds you offer and how those might be appropriate in the economic environment you've described here.
2: Well, well sure. I mean, wh- one, of the, one of the themes um, I, that, that we're portraying in, in our book and, and also otherwise is that there may, no, be, there may not be a such a thing anymore as a safe asset. Um, that um, no matter if you're in a crisis well where are you going to seek shelter and, and of course traditionally that's the US dollar but um, with the threats to the purchasing power of the US dollar um, that might not be good enough anymore and so two of the mutual funds we, we offer and um, we're not saying that these are the answers for everybody uh, but those are tools to to, to for people to consider as additional diversification tools uh, one is a hard currency fund and one is an Asian currency fund and uh, they invest in baskets managed baskets, Baskets of hot currencies without leverage. We don't use leverage in our, in our funds, um, typically, um, uh, even though we're in a currency space, but we buy the cash of, of other currencies to diversify. Um, central banks are diversifying in baskets of currencies. Well, we offer the same thing um, with our funds. And then our... our Third fund is our absolute return currency fund. And the idea here is that um, we go long or short different currencies. Um, In our hard Asian funds, if we don't like a currency, we simply don't buy it. In our absolute return currency fund, we can, without leverage, short a currency. And, uh, again, while we can't guarantee that we make money in that, what we are trying to achieve here is that, take the example, for example, you go, um, long Australia short New Zealand and you are betting on the inter- on the differential and the price moves between the two currencies well the one thing you can be reasonably sure of is that that return will have a very low correlation to anything else investors may be holding and that's the design of that mutual fund trying to add additional diversification in an environment where policy are throwing out trillions moving all asset classes in tandem and where there's very difficult where it's very difficult to hide somewhere
1: and so what have been the returns so far on say the absolute fund uh, and the uh, Asian Currency Fund and the Hard Asset Fund, which is what, how they've done since they've come out.
2: Our Hard Currency Fund has, has come out in 2005, and uh, we have fairly consistently outperformed the what's called the inverse of the dollar index. Uh, in 2008, um, we were the heroes by only, quote-unquote, losing a little um, less than 5%. Um, and we've done reasonably well in, in, in the other years as well. The Asian Currency Fund, um, we only launched in, in the spring of Um has had a fairly boring uh, performance, mostly because a lot of the currencies we invest in um, have almost a peg to the U.S. dollar. Asian countries... Don't like to have a free-floating currency, um, and we have um, a, a very high percentage to the Chinese one, for example, in the Asian Currency Fund. The Absolute Return Currency Fund was only launched a couple of months ago and has too short a track record for, for any, any performance discussion to be reasonable, um, but um, they all fulfill their purpose, and uh, we generally try to not push the performance so much. It's really the, the expectations of what investors think that these currency markets may do in the future, um, whether the diversification will aid, and the fact that we've had a, 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 an attractive performance of course helps, but um, people need to understand these types of products and and evaluate whether they're suitable for them.
1: So these are currency funds. What role do precious metals, uh, and not only gold and silver, but platinum and palladium play in uh protecting you against all these trends you're talking about inflation and uh, inf- sure it, our
2: our hot, our hot currency fund traditionally has had a gold exposure around 10% sometimes a little bit higher a little bit lower um, the reason we like gold is because it's the simplest of all the metals it has the least industrial use and as a result has the greatest monetary sensitivity when you move over to silver you do have the industrial use Silver is far more volatile, and gold is uh, volatile enough. Um, if people, anybody who has looked at gold over a considerable period, knows that there can be shockingly high volatility, and and, and you really need to be prepared for it. And the more you move to to other metals, the greater the w- volatility can be. Um, oil, um, as as a as a different type of commodity, um, has very high political dynamics to it, and so gold is just the simplest of them. Um, it's it's challenging enough to to try to understand the dynamics there, um, and and of of course, you can make money in any of them, but um, then you're moving beyond the, the diversification as, a, as, a, as money or currency um, beyond the dollar and, and a really betting on other things. And, and by all means, I'm not discouraging people from um, so I'm looking at that because in an environment with dollar weekends those things might also be growing but you have greater volatility especially as these market forces battle out whenever you have the the recessionary forces the contraction forces play out um, something like silver can move 10% in a day downward not just upward and that can be very very painful when um, when uh, when you're not prepared for it
1: in the long run uh, how much higher can you see gold going say in the next decade or so I'm not liking for a daily thing but just i mean what what kind of potential is there from gold at, at roughly well, you, 1100 now
2: you you asked me earlier about the parabolic rise you haven't had that in gold one of the key differences between differences between gold and other currencies is that um, the gold market is ex- far less liquid than other markets is and so, if and when you have a flight into gold, it moves far more. And we see that on days where, where gold sometimes moves up 2, 3, 4, even 5%. Um, but that is nothing compared to what can happen in, in a real panic. We haven't seen that. It's extremely difficult in a, in a bubble to put a price target on something, and we're not in a bubble yet. Um, I don't think that um, that we will end this before gold is in the bubble. And as a result, um, I, that's one of the reasons why we put our college fund into into physical gold, because we thought over the next 10, 20 years, um, gold is likely to at least perform as well as most other assets have. And indeed, when measured in gold, the price of college tuition has been going down every single year since we started the program um, early last decade.
1: So you think with all these things that you talked about happening as far as the devaluation of currency that gold is going to be the last remaining valuable asset in a certain way
2: well you can look at it that way at the same time if you have a lot of your money in gold um it is very volatile and so does it do you really can you bear that can you bear the risk of having all your money in gold and that that's something people have to answer for themselves. Even the staunchest gold bug rarely, rarely have 100% of the money in gold. So that's why you want to look for other diversification means. But, uh, yes, I do think that gold um, should be part of everybody's portfolio.
1: Very good. All right, well, it's been fascinating. Uh, again, Axel Merck's latest book is called Sustainable Wealth, Achieve Financial Security in a Volatile World of Debt and Consumption. And he has a website, sustainablewealth.org. Thanks so much for being on the show, Axel. Thank you. And we'll be back again with you next week.